are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. At one time, we were too foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Well, we have started a study this fall that is looking into Scripture at what we're calling healthy rhythms. And we're spending some of our time in these really small, somewhat obscure letters of the New Testament. And Titus is where we have begun, followed by others in weeks to come. Next week we're going to be in Philemon. But I don't want the term healthy spiritual rhythms, that word spiritual, to allow for any of us our eyes to glaze over or to just kind of mentally check out because we don't consider ourselves a very spiritual person. The lessons that we're learning last week, this week, and every Sunday are very practical. Just ask the older women about last week's sermon, right? (laughs) I heard so many jokes and quips as a follow-up to last week. I almost dare not broach the subject ever again. (laughs) And if you missed last week, now you're really wondering what church you came to this morning. You just have to go back and read Titus chapter 2, and that'll be evident. But this week we're in Titus 3, and I would say regardless of your age or stage in life, there's not a person among us who is not immediately and profoundly addressed by this passage. We've got just eight verses this morning, and we're going to study the length of the passage. But the healthy rhythm, really the biblical teaching that leads to a happy heart that I'd like to draw out of this passage is that we would focus on healthy conflict. Healthy conflict. Even the name sounds almost like an impossibility, an oxymoron. How can conflict be healthy? Conflict isn't fun, it's not desirable, and yet we all know this side of heaven, it is inevitable. And God has called us to deal with it in a healthy, desirable way. I'm now 40 years old. I was 26 when I graduated from seminary and we moved to Elk River for ministry. And I have been, by virtue of age, a Titus, a younger pastor. 
And best estimates around this book of the Bible put Titus in his mid to late 30s. And so that's been the season that I've been in, but now I find that the older season of Paul is approaching somewhere on the horizon now. I'm somewhere in between. No longer new in ministry, and you've been gracious, some of you, to put up with me for quite a long time. But in my 14 years of vocational ministry, one of the consistent realities that I have heard again and again is the reality of relational conflict across these tables reflected in my own life. It's a fact of life and can seem impossible to resolve. I found even among people who are, you might think, well, that's a good-natured person, and they seem to get along with everybody. Under the surface, you'll often find that there's one relationship or a couple of situations where they find themselves at their wit's end. It could be any of these following examples. It could be a brother-in-law or a sister-in-law. It could be a relationship with one of their adult children. I've known not a small number of people who are completely estranged from a particular family member. And they'll say to me, oh, I, we haven't spoken in years. I've heard that multiple times over the years. It's a relationship that somewhere in time was cut off, was severed. Among our middle schoolers, for example, let's, let's pick a totally different category. There can be relational drama where relationships fall in and out of favor. Or last week we talked about what it means to be subject to a boss or a supervisor. Or you're working alongside coworkers, and that can be a place of conflict or resentment or office grumbling. Or we find and would readily acknowledge even here in a church family, in a Y group even, in your smaller fellowship, there can just be that that one guy, you like the whole group, but there's this one guy, or there's this, this one person who always does this. Even in marriage, we find we can live in a state and almost become accustomed to a state of barely tolerating one another. Almost like there's this slow burn in the background of a relationship. And some of us have experienced divorce, which is the legal resolution of unresolved conflict. Conflict is complicated, and it can lead to some of life's most painful moments. And all this on a personal level is mirrored and multiplied in a way in society. I received a letter in the mail just this week from the seminary I attended in Germany, and I was going to have our foreign exchange student, Peter, come up and read it, but you're going to have to put up with my pronunciation. The very first sentence of this newsletter Es gibt kaum einen Begriff, der die Situation unserer Zeit treffender zusammenfasst, wie der Begriff Krise. You got it? <laughs> it would have been better with Peter. But here's what that sentence says. Translated, it says, There is hardly a term more fitting for our time than the term Krise, crisis. And then the letter goes on to list things that are impacting people the world over. The pandemic, the war in Ukraine, rising costs, politics. And in our own country, we've maybe never known a time, I've just got 40 years under my belt, some of you could speak to a broader time span, we've maybe never known a time of greater polarization than the one we're in now. 
The November elections are coming. Minnesota will elect a new governor. Here locally, the Elk River School Board will elect new board members. To me, it seems like a very fitting time to talk about conflict. And hardly a better spot than Titus chapter 3. So a quick reminder as we pick up this letter then. Titus was a pastor on the island of Crete, which was a large island just south of the Grecian mainland. And it was, of course, that part of the world, that time, it was subject to the Roman Empire. So Paul left Titus there on Crete to shepherd the churches. He found himself with no small task at hand to tend to the health of the church in Crete. And Paul told Titus in chapter 1, he's to go town to town across this large island where the church is growing and spreading. And he's to appoint elders or church leaders. And remember that these are not churches and church buildings, but they're meeting in homes, they're meeting in town meeting halls, wherever people who are following Jesus could gather for worship and for Bible study and prayer. And the church had need of solid spiritual leadership because false teaching, again back to chapters 1 and 2, teaching outside of the Bible was making the rounds and was growing in popularity. So how do you counteract false teaching? First, Paul had said, by sticking to sound teaching. And secondly, how do you counteract it? It's by living out what we say we believe in our actions. And that will be evident in the passage today. There's a very close association between doctrine and life. And I've outlined our study this morning under four headings. Reminder, remember, rebirth, and purpose. So if you're waiting for alliteration, I spoiled it with the last one. (laughs) But that's what it is. Reminder, remember, rebirth, and purpose. So let's begin with reminder. And we're going to kind of spend the bulk of our time early on and then move a little more quickly as we head through the passage. In the first two verses that you'll see on the screen or in your Bibles in front of you, we have our reminder. These are the imperatives of the passage, and we'll want to pay very close attention for the principles of healthy conflict. And I say that because every single one of these reminders, and I count six of them, are relational. So Paul says to Titus, first of all, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. And we'll pause there for just a moment. I want to remind us of what's happening, and to not miss the point here, that Titus is to tell the followers of Christ in Crete to subject themselves. What does that mean? That means to respect and obey their pagan, hedonistic, non-Christian rulers, being the Romans. Let's move right to application together now that we have that established. Do you and I ever find ourselves under the governing authority of political leaders who do not appear to follow Christ? Yes. Of course. Maybe, we might sense, increasingly so. The Christian voter may find himself or herself in a bit of a quandary when they might be looking for a candidate of biblical principles. But here's the point. Do our rules of engagement change? Do I get to rebuff a leader because I don't like their politics? No. 
Do I get to badmouth a leader because I disagree with their direction? No. Do I get to say, and I've heard this for how many presidential cycles now, so nobody particular in mind, but do I get to say, not my president because it wasn't my candidate? Not according to the Bible. And I would just say, if you think that's a challenge for you or I, just study up on the Roman emperors and you tell me who had it harder. Now, some of us will find ourselves wanting to run very quickly to the exception clause. Yeah, but what if a leader does this? Or what if a leader does such and such or decrees such and such? And yes, the exceptions exist. But if we run for the exception so fast, we may well trip over the point of the passage. Yes, the exceptions exist. And we said that clearly when we studied not long ago Romans chapter 13. There is a time, there is a time when a situation is so severe that to quote Peter in Acts chapter 5, we must obey God rather than man. But it is the rare exception. Like Daniel in the lion's den. Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Or Martin Luther being told to recant clear biblical teaching. Or Corey Ten Boom hiding Jews from the Nazis. Or the new believer being baptized today in Afghanistan. Or Christians who are secretly meeting for worship today in North Korea. There is a time and place. But it's probably not here. The opportunity that we have is to boldly live out our faith and to subject ourselves to the authorities that God has allowed. And so what an opportunity we have these midterms. And I want to encourage you to be engaged in the noble task of political leadership. I want to encourage you to contend for good policy, support your candidate, debate and discuss, but your most powerful move will be when you actively submit to our leaders. Now some of you are looking at the time and we're only in verse 1. And you're thinking, how we're ever going to make it. But we're going to move more quickly as we go. Paul continues and he says, be obedient. The people of Crete were stereotyped as being especially rebellious and difficult, both actually in the Bible and in extra-biblical sources we see this portrayed. So it was Paul who quotes a secular philosopher from Crete in chapter 1 of this letter who said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. And then Paul immediately follows up that quote and says, it's true. So that was their reputation. But now under Christ, they get to live a totally different way. Be obedient and be ready to do whatever is good. And I want to ask you, what does that ready posture look like for you? I got to watch my oldest son, Lennox, play baseball this summer. It was his first season of real baseball, playing for the City League. And he found himself playing mostly second base. And if you know baseball, you know, playing the infield, you've got to be in the ready position every time the ball is pitched. If you're a good infielder, you don't just stand with your hands in your pockets, but you're crouched down, you've got your glove at the ready, and you're ready to react quickly if the ball comes your way. We are to be ready to do good. 
The list continues. Remind the people to slander no one. And again, if I remember right, it was our older women where this appeared last week in the text. If you remember in Titus 2, it says, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers. Well, I've got good news for us. It's a word for all of us. In Titus 3, don't slander anyone. Now, it's okay to speak critically when necessary, as we see Paul do when he references the false teachers on Crete. It's okay to speak clearly and truthfully, but it might not always be necessary. Just because something is true doesn't mean that it needs to be said. But what we should have nothing to do with, says Paul, is slander. And what is slander? It is false information or gossip that damages somebody else's reputation. Rather, Paul continues, now the positive commands, be peaceable and considerate. And in such contentious times as we live in, how countercultural a move is that? Don't be contentious. Don't be quarrelsome. Learn how to diffuse a fight. What I see in the news this week, I'm sure many of you saw it too, there was a brawl at the Edina homecoming game last weekend. And then this weekend, Friday night, the Richfield Stadium was evacuated because shots were fired outside. And two young men, I think ages 19 and 21, were hit and injured by gunfire. What a mess. You read the news? What are we to do? We're to live a completely different way. Be peaceable, considerate, and always be gentle toward everyone. And that last phrase, you'll see the different translations. They're trying to figure this out and how to draw out the nuance. It means something like show every consideration. Show unqualified consideration and courtesy. And toward who? Toward everyone. That's like everyone. The guy who cuts you off in traffic, I mean, with all the road construction going on, it is bound to happen. The guy who cuts you off in traffic, you get to bless him. I mean, try that out. You can bless him right out loud from your car. Instead of some gesture or muttering or hollering out something or hitting the horn, you can say, sir, I bless you in Jesus' name. Do it. You could even pray for him. Lord, I pray for that guy's rest of his day, whatever's going on. Be near to him, Lord. Speak to him. Be gentle toward everyone. That means the obnoxious parent, the most obnoxious parent you have ever seen at your kid's game. That means the classmate students who irritates you like none other. That means the neighbor that you don't like. It's kind of a, a universal thing. Everybody's got a neighbor they don't like. That means the person on social media who drives you crazy. Gentleness, meekness, humility, these are the ways of Jesus and these are the ways that will win the day every time. That's Paul's reminder. Next we move to remember. In verse 3, Paul follows up the reminder by being quick to remember who we once were. And he says, you see it in front of us, I'll, I'll summarize it. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, malicious, envious, 
being hated and hating one another. That's quite the resume that we have going there. And how quickly we can forget that that's exactly the way that my life was before I came to Christ. Now some of you have a very clear memory of this change. A distinct before and after season to your life. Like Mary Magdalene in The Chosen. I was one way and now I'm completely different, she said. For others of us, you don't have that clear watershed conversion moment that you remember in your life because you, praise the Lord, were raised in a home where your parents nurtured you in faith and it was like this gradual unfolding. You trusted Christ as long as you can remember and it matured and blossomed over a long period of time. But regardless, whatever your faith journey has looked like, the Bible says that all of us are born into sin, that the human heart, it says in Jeremiah, is desperately sick, and only God can set it free. I was reviewing an article just a few days ago that has new data on the top five heresies, it's a word you don't hear often, the top five heresies in the American church. So a heresy is just a fancy-sounding way of saying an unbiblical belief. And these are the top five unbiblical beliefs that Christians start believing. They're detailed in this article. And one of them in the top five is that people are not sinful by nature, which is something that's clearly taught in the Bible. Psalm 51, Romans 5, many, many other places. Now it's not surprising that we might get off track on this. For one, babies are just so cute. I mean, what do we say when a baby is born? Oh, he's just perfect. Nobody says when they see a newborn baby, oh, she's a sinner in need of redeeming. (laughs) You better watch out if you say that with mom or dad around. (laughs) But especially not surprising to see this trend where in the American church, one of the top five heresies is that we say, no, people are not sinful by nature, is that we've now crossed a threshold in our country where over half the population, at least according to this study, it was 53%, over half the population says now that the Bible simply isn't true. It's a book of mythology, half-true history, and laden with error. In 2014, by the way, for comparison, that number was 41% who said that, and now it's 53. And that number will continue to rise, we would guess, barring revival, which we pray for, and a supernatural act of God in this land. And I'm guessing, by the way, that most people who are coming to that conclusion about the Bible have not actually read the Bible for themselves. But they've heard it said, and they dismiss it anyway. And yet look around. I mean, you look at the state that the world is in, the trajectory that we are on, and if people are not sinful by nature, I wonder how you explain it. Even outside an appeal to the Bible, I find it much more plausible that mankind is actually sinful from birth and in desperate need to be saved outside himself. Every single one of us. So, let us be careful that before we throw our non-Christian neighbor under the bus for any bad behavior, that we look in the mirror and not forget that I was in the exact same spot. 
living in bitter conflict and enmity toward God and man. Remember who you were. And then we get to verse 4, and we find in the passage, as Nicole read this, it's like the sun begins to rise. There is a light shining in the darkness as we read these words. It says, but when the sun is coming up, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Paul's reminding us, I, I had nothing. I was lost and wretched and stuck in the mud, but all of a sudden, the kindness and love of God appeared. As a guy broke down on the side of the road, right? Pray. And all of a sudden, God appeared. The tow truck is here. And he's pulled me out. What Paul is doing here now in this section is giving the theological basis that is the reason for the earlier imperatives where we started. He's saying, I cannot even begin to subject myself or be obedient or pursue what is good if God did not first pursue me. I cannot even begin to dream of being peaceable or considerate or gentle or any other virtue if God did not first come and set me free. But He did. And it changed the course of my whole story. And if we want to talk about healthy conflict and how to walk with grace in a conflict-laden world, then it has to start with the gospel. It has to start with what God did for me. And that's the way it works, we're reminded in this passage. It is all of God, 100% God, 0% me. Paul says he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. And I know it can be a very persistent temptation among us to think that God accepts me if I'm good enough. A lot of us can operate under that assumption. Where we say, you know, I I know I'm not perfect, but if I try my best, and if I am mostly nice to most people, and if I attend church often enough, then I think when I die, God will let me in. That can be our default mode of operation. But biblical teaching, sound doctrine says you don't have a chance if that's the way you're operating. You don't have a chance. Not you, not your holiest uncle or grandparent, not Mother Teresa herself, but you have got to put all of your weight on the mercy of God. That is what saves us. And what we find in verses 4-7 to is this beautiful summary of these truths. It is, in the original Greek, one single majestic sentence that stretches from verses 4-7. to And some say, when the scholars who know better than I do, they say, you know, this appears to be a creed in the early church, a faith statement. Some even say that it appears to be a hymn, and they would actually put this to music. Whatever it was, it's about our spiritual rebirth in Christ. In John 3, Jesus told Nicodemus he had to be born again. In Titus 3, Paul writes, similarly, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us. How? Just enough? Just enough to squeak by? No, generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that 
And this is the result now that's coming. It says, so that having been justified by grace, which is a legal term, meaning having been pronounced guiltless, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Paul says elsewhere, we were once slaves to sin. By contrast, we had no rights. We had no privileges, no inheritance. But in Christ, by faith, we were brought into God's family. Galatians 4 says, you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. And what do we inherit? The hope in the Bible. Hope means promise. The promise of eternal life. So there you have the scope of this passage. Reminder, remember, rebirth. And now it finishes in verse 8 with purpose. Paul says, this is a trustworthy saying. And what is he referring to? It's the verses 4 to 7. That sentence. And he says to the young pastor Titus, I want you to stress these things. I want you to emphasize them. I want you to speak confidently about them. So that, and this is why it's called purpose. Here's the purpose statement. So that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. And it comes full circle. Some of you are careful to devote yourselves to the purple and gold. And I hope it goes a lot better today than it did last Monday. You're devoted fans. Some of you are careful to devote yourselves to your appearance. What am I going to wear today? How do I look? How's my hair? Where's my hair going? Whatever the case might be. (laughs) And some of you may not spend a small amount of time in the mirror in the morning getting ready for your day. You're devoted. Some of you are careful to devote yourself to a favorite band or a favorite brand or a favorite TV show. And you don't ever miss an album. You own them all. You are there for every new release. You only ever buy such and such a product. You're devoted. And the question that Paul poses for us this morning is, how about being devoted to good work? Waking up, looking for an opportunity. The ready position. And keep in mind the why. It's not because we somehow think we're scoring points with God. That is never going to work. But it's because these things, what does it say, are excellent and profitable for everyone. That's the big idea of the whole passage. That you and I would pursue peace in every relationship that you have so that others may be drawn to Christ through you. They see your life. They're impacted by your life. And they say, I want to know that Jesus, who he is following. My brothers and sisters, in any of the relational conflicts that I have ever had in my life, I have found that there is one common denominator between all of them. And it's me. I'm the golden thread in any relational conflict I've ever had. And I'm really only responsible for me. You know that, right? In conflict? 
And you almost have to work backwards through this passage. And you're asking yourself this morning, well, have I trusted in God? Have I really actually done that? Have I been reborn in Christ and have I received His salvation that He's given? Do I remember how bad it was with me before? And if so, if all that is true, then I am ready to live in a totally different way with the people who God puts around me. I wonder, person to person, what relationship God has brought to your mind this morning as we've studied this text. I wonder what relationship of yours needs mending. What conflict could finally be resolved because we've heard the word of the Lord. I'm telling you, it's a dangerous thing to come to church. It's a dangerous thing to open your Bible. Following Christ is intended to change lives. And it starts right here with you and me. Let's bow in prayer together. Well, Lord, we thank you for the treasure that we have in your word. And Lord, it speaks so clearly and can almost be a little bit painful, Lord, as we maybe hear this word this morning. And each one of us has a relationship or two that comes to mind. Lord, some of us in a conflict so deeply entrenched has been a reality for so long, it's almost impossible to think it could ever be undone. For others, Lord, it's for us maybe just the daily irritations, those people who get to us. We submit it all to you this morning, Lord. And we pray that by the power of your Spirit, we would walk as you have called us to. Lord, may we do so out of great love and worship of you and all that you've done in our life. We humbly pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.